Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 3. As we come down to these concluding verses in that chapter, as we have been moving through the Gospel of John for the last 16 weeks or so, and I want you to hear the word of the Lord in these concluding verses, verses 22 through 36, that serve as sort of a, an epilogue, if you will, to uh, the, uh, the involvement of John the Baptist or John the Baptizer uh, in these particular times in the ministry and life of Jesus. He is fading. Jesus is on the rise. I, I titled this sermon, you know, what do you do when, what do you do when something bigger comes along? Because that is really what John's disciples are seeing. Uh, John's been the biggest show in town for six or seven months now, I mean, or maybe even longer. He's been preaching. He's been baptizing. He's been seeing these kind of things happening and, and people following and listening to his preaching. And, and all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene, and we're going to find out that people started following after him more than after John. And, and John's disciples were concerned about that. Now John wasn't, and, and he, he shows here, and we see here clearly that John's attitude was a biblical attitude. John's attitude was an attitude that, that he understood from the very beginning, but that did not, cause some of, did not keep some of his disciples from having just a, just a tad bit of jealousy, just a tad bit of concern that, hey, we've been the focal point, we've been the center of attention, and now Jesus is getting all that attention. Why is that the case? Now, I want you to understand that this passage is not on how, how to deal with, uh, with jealousy, although there are principles here that will help us to see how we ought also to deal with jealousy. It's, the, the primary teaching of this text is not, oh, well, good, there's some real life application here for that, although there is some life application for it. The text is showing that Christ has come. John is recognizing that, and John is pointing us to the Messiah in a very clear way, and he's saying in this epilogue of these verses in John the Evangelist's gospel, he's saying, listen, I want you to see what is happening here. The old is giving way, and the new has come. John was a, a prophet. John was a, a spokesman, if you will, that of all people at all time had one foot in the old covenant and one foot sort of settled in the new covenant. He was a transitional person in, in redemptive history. He was a transitional person in the understanding of moving from the grace of the law to the grace of the gospel. How God dealt with people by, in accordance with the law and how he gave the law to show our need for more than the law could give us and how now the Messiah has come ultimately to be our sacrifice, to be the precious, spotless, blameless Lamb of God. And John is the one who, if you will, has one foot in either side, sort of, and he points, to, he points toward Christ with a clarity and understanding that you and I need. Hear the word of the Lord as I read it from John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. Now after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he was spending time with them and was baptizing. Now we're going to find out in verse 2 of chapter 4 that although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. But, but there's a general statement here. Jesus was involved in it because he was doing the preaching. And, and, and John also was baptizing in Enon uh, near Salim uh, because there was much water there. And people were coming and they were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. The passage that, uh, out of Luke that, that Brother Ricky read during the 
Scripture reading this morning. John had not yet been thrown into prison, but, but John just assumes his readers know about that. Therefore, there arose a discussion or a dispute on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. You see that bit of just a, just a twinge of jealousy there, just a twinge of, John, reassure us here. What's this all about? Everybody's going after him now. They were coming after us, and now everybody's going after him. There's a bigger, there's, there's a bigger show in town now than we are. What are we going to do about this? And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. I'm a forerunner. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears, hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. Here's that statement. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase. Christ must increase. But I, John, or I, Bill, or you must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. But he who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit of God without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son, and the word obey and belief are tied in there almost synonymous, he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Or may I say, on him or on her. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we bow again in your presence asking you to take your word and Lord, enlighten our hearts and our eyes to see your word, to understand your truth, and Lord, to abide in it and live in it from this day forward. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What we have here in verse 22, the starting of this last testimony of John and this, this last vision that we'll see of him before John is thrown in prison and ultimately is killed, is first of all, we see Jesus embarking on sort of a, a general ministry of teaching and preaching. He's sort of going into Judea, Judea and, uh, and he's beginning to preach. And he's beginning to teach people, and people are coming to him, and they're being baptized. Now, there's not a clear statement here about if the baptism of Jesus has somehow been changed, and it's different from the baptism of John. As a matter of fact, the indication seems to be that Jesus is also saying, come and be baptized for the repentance of sins. Come and be baptized because the, the, the kingdom of God is at hand. 
come and hear the truth, come and hear the word, and come and abide in it. That, that appears to be the message that Jesus is preaching, which is not a lot different from that of John. The ministry and the message has not yet become as focused and as clear on the gospel that Jesus has come to proclaim as maybe it will in these next few chapters that we are looking at. But, but he starts talking about the ministry. He starts talking about this, this difference in John and Jesus' ministry. And, and the disciples of John get into some kind of dispute with a Jew over purification. Now, again, that's, that's not really unfo- unpacked for us, unfolded for us clearly what that was all about, although the Jews had a, a rite of baptism that was for purification. It was a part of the ritual going into the tabernacle, going into the temple. It was a part of the ritual of coming to the presence of God for worship. It wasn't exactly baptism like John did, but it was called baptism in, in much the same wording, if you will. And so they got into a dispute probably about, now is this baptism making you fit now to go into the temple and to worship God? Is this baptism preparing you for temple worship and for temple sacrifices and for temple service? And, and John's disciples obviously said, no, we're not having anything to do with the temple. We're coming, proclaiming the way of the Lord, and you have moved far afield from that. You have moved way off of center from that. You're not proclaiming the truth of God. You've got your own system, your own religion, your own rituals, your own righteousness that you have built for yourself, and we have anything to do with that. And so they get to disputing about that, and all of a sudden, Jesus gets pulled into it. And the disciples say, well, well, well John, if, 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 if this is true, we're differing with the Jews over purification, what our baptism is, then what about Jesus? What about his baptism? Is it different? And why is it that all are now following him? Now, now we know that all is a descriptive term. It's a it's a hyperbole term, if you will, because obviously everybody wasn't following after Jesus. John's disciples weren't following after Jesus. They were sticking with John. They probably later on moved over into the, to the right camp, if you will, but right now they were, they were loyal to John ferociously. The Jews obviously weren't following after Jesus. They were as conflicted and as confused about his ministry as anybody ever could be. So you really had all sorts of things at work here. You had a, a, a group of people who were following after Jesus, but the disciples saw the multitudes growing with Jesus, and, and they were so disturbed by it till they just threw in the word, all are following after him. I wish John had said to that disciple, whoever voiced that, are, are you also following after him? And he said, well, no, I'm not, John. I'm staying with you. And John could have said, well, you see, you're, you're being just a little overreactive here. You're acting just a little too much to what's taking place in the life of Jesus because there's coming a time when you're going to see that truth. But instead of doing that, John instead gives some, some great teaching here about who he is and about who Jesus is. And we must remember that many of the principles that apply to John's ministry apply to you and me and apply to churches in our, in our, in our country and in our world and indeed in our community today. The, the focus has to be right because if a church gets its focus wrong and we start focusing on ourselves or on a building or on programs or, and saying, look, we are better because we have this, then we have lost the essence of the gospel completely. We've lost the essence of who Christ is and why Christ came and why we are here. And and that's what was in danger of happening here with John and his disciples. I want you to see four things that John says here to those disciples who came concerned over that. First of all, in verse 27, he begins by saying, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Now, he cites here 
what some have called a maxim or, or some have called what I would call just a theological truth. And it's a theological truth that runs throughout all of John's gospel. Indeed, I would argue that it's a theological truth that runs throughout all of the, of the New Testament. And that is you can't have anything unless God in his plan and in his sovereign purpose and his sovereign rule gives it to you. A man can receive only that which he receives from heaven, only that which is given him by God. Now, you know, you can take that down to the most minute detail, I suppose, but really what John is saying here is I want you to understand that God, as Dr. Ware so beautifully expounded on Wednesday night in the truth of God's providence, God is the sovereign ruler of our world, and we have to recognize that and understand that or we will lose our focus quickly on who really is in control and who really does matter. It's not an isolated thing with with John the Baptist here. The psalmist said basically the same thing in in Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7, when he said, for for not from the east nor from the west nor from the uh, desert comes exaltation, but God is the judge and he puts down one and he exalts another. That's the psalmist's way of saying the same thing that John just said. One can't have anything, one can't accomplish anything unless it's given to him from heaven. God is the blessed giver, the blessed giver of all gifts and all good things. And so the psalmist agrees with John the Baptist. Paul said the same thing basically in in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian Christians, he said, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if, you did, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Paul was dealing with, with discussions and dis- disputations there in Corinth where they were disputing with one another about their gifts. They were disputing with one another about being a Paul or being of Apollos or being of Christ or, or whatever camp they were in. And, and Paul just simply said, listen, you've got it all wrong. You are focusing on yourself. You are focusing on the gifts that God has given you. Don't focus on what, has, what God has given you. Don't focus on the gifts. Focus on the giver. You wouldn't have anything if God had not granted it to you. You wouldn't be in this position if God had not granted it to you. So don't think you're superior. Why would anyone think you're superior? You need to focus on Christ and Christ alone. And so John says, that which we have has been given to us by God. You know what that ought to do? It ought to humble us. It ought to bring us into a humble submission to His purpose and His will. It ought to bring us before Him with a spirit of gratitude and a spirit of thanksgiving and a spirit of praise and a spirit of worship. You know, there are far too many times we walk into a, a sanctuary like this, whether it's here or somewhere else, we walk in with this idea Oh, we'd never vocalize it. We'd never verbalize it. We're far too, we're far too uh, nice for that. But, but there are many times we walk in with almost the attitude, you know, God's fortunate that I chose to come here today. God's fortunate that I, of all people, decided to follow him and be his disciple. And, you know, I, God really is lucky to have me. John says, listen. You ought to fall on your face and thank God that he loved you. You ought to fall on your face and thank God that he's gifted you. You ought to fall on your face and thank God that he's saved you and redeemed you from the pit because it's all by his grace and it's all for his glory. The second thing John does in verse 28 
is he sort of resumes his earlier stance that he made earlier in this book when talking to his disciples and talking to others. In verse 28, he said, you yourselves are my witnesses. You, you've heard me say this before, that I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. When Jesus came down to the river to be baptized by John, you know, everybody was looking, everybody was wondering, what is this all about? And, and they were wanting John to declare a kingdom and just set it up himself. And then Jesus comes along, they want him to set up a kingdom, and, and he's not falling into their trap either. But John said there by the river, when he baptized Jesus, and Jesus went up out of the water, John pointed to him. There, there's a picture hanging back in my study, back in my office, of, that's taken out of a, a Grunewald's altarpiece from, from hundreds of years ago. It's a big piece of art, but there's one over on the side, Jesus hanging on the cross, and I, I, I bought something that had isolated John the Baptist out. And John is standing there kind of like this with a long, bony finger. And in, in, in Greek written above it, it says, He must increase and I must decrease. He is the Christ. I'm not the Christ. I didn't come to save. I can't save. I came as a forerunner. I came to show you that he is the one. And when Jesus came up out of that water, John looked at him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God. And those people in their mind knew those lambs were used for sacrificial offerings. And John said, I'm just following in the stance I took early on with you when we first saw Jesus, I want you to remember that Jesus is the preeminent one. I was merely sent ahead of him to point the way to him. I am his servant. So we, we see the idea of nothing is received unless it's given from heaven. We see the idea that, that John is his servant. John is his forerunner. But thirdly, I want you to see the vivid image that John uses in verse 29. He says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, and the friend there is what we might call in our day, in our culture, it's not used quite the same way, but the best man. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. Can you imagine what would happen if, if you're at a wedding? And understand that in Jesus' day, the, the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, was not just somebody who stood here and held the ring. And when it came time, handed the ring off to the pastor to be able to put on the bride's hand. But instead, the, the, the friend of the groom, the, the, the best man in that day, was a man who took care of all the details from the beginning to the end. He, he handled the feast. He handled the, the party beforehand that, we, that Jesus went to like in Cana. And, and, and he handled all the details of that for the groom so the groom didn't have to worry himself with that. The day of the wedding, he made sure the bride was where she was supposed to be and all the attendants were where they were supposed to be. And, and he took care of all the details until that moment when he stood and he heard the voice of the groom coming and he knew the bride was there and the groom was coming. He heard his voice and his joy was filled because now the wedding was about to take place. Can you imagine going to a wedding and, and you, everybody comes in and everybody's ready and you're waiting on the bride to come, the groom's in place, the best man is there, and, and all of a sudden during the uh, getting ready for the bride to come in, the groom starts cracking jokes, uh, the, the best man starts cracking jokes, starts saying, look at me, watch me, let me tell you what, I, I'm the one that's done all this, I've prepared all this, I've gotten it ready, 
I'm the one you ought to be praising right now. Nobody would do that. Not even in our day with all the crazy stuff that goes on in weddings in our day today. But in Jesus' day, in John's day, it certainly wouldn't. The bridegroom was intent on one thing. He didn't have the bride. He, he, he was not the bridegroom. He was the friend. He was the best man who was to be sure that everything went smoothly and went according to plan. And that's what John the Baptist is saying here. I'm merely his friend. It's Jesus who will have the bride. What is the bride? The church, the redeemed, the people he will save through his work on the cross. I mean, I mean, it's, it, it's Jesus. John is saying, listen, I don't have the bride. I don't, I don't have the bride. I'm just here to tell the bride to get ready because the groom is coming for his own. It was just a glorious job, but he didn't get all the attention. The reference to the bridegroom here and, and, and that John uses is really quite, quite important because it echoes the past, it, it shows us the present, and it points to the future in every respect. It echoes to the past in, in that it uses those Old Testament, that Old Testament ideas that depict Israel as God's bride. In, in Isaiah, I only use one here, Isaiah 62, 4, it, Isaiah says, It will no longer be said to you, forsaken, nor your land, will it lo- no longer will it be called or said desolate, but you will be called, my delight is in her. And your land will be called married, for the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. To him you will be married. You will be a people for his own love and possession. So in the Old Testament, Israel is, is portrayed as the bride of God, whom God is waiting to redeem. But it also anticipates later New Testament teaching about Jesus. Later in the New Testament, uh, in 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul writes, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, quoting God here, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Paul, quoting God from the Old Testament, says, I have I have, in, I have engaged with you. I've become engaged with you so that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ, the bridegroom. Or we all know the Ephesians 5 passage, verses 25 through 27, where Paul says, husbands, love your wives. This ought to wake you up, husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Literally implied, gave himself totally for her, completely for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church, the bride, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved his bride, his wife the church. He gave himself totally. He sacrificed himself totally. He died for her. We men need to focus on that probably more often. Revelation 21, verses 2 and 9. Revelation 22, verse 17, they won't read. All continue that theme of the glorious bride of Christ in the last time when when Christ returns a second time and, and redeems and brings his bride to himself. But used against this background of the Old Testament uh, teaching about Israel being the bride of God, 
and, and the New Testament teaching of Jesus, of the church being the bride of Christ, the bride of Jesus. You ought to all see this thirdly, that this is a strong, strong, clear pointer to the deity of Christ. It points to his deity. Uh, Mark said that in Mark chapter 2. He said, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. The bridegroom's there, they're rejoicing, they're feasting, they're fellowshipping, and Jesus is there with them. But there's coming a day when Calvary will come, and the bridegroom will physically be taken away from them. And that will be the time when fasting and seeking his face and seeking his guidance will become necessary. I saw on Twitter this morning, one of my friends was preaching on that passage out of Mark. I found it quite interesting that the title of his sermon is, now let us fast. And then he said, by the way, coffee and donuts will be served before the service. I don't know. Kind of unique. But this is pointing to the deity of Christ. It's pointing to the It's pointing to the reality of him being God in the flesh. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John has already told us. It's showing us that this one Jesus, who is the bridegroom, is here to redeem for himself a bride. And then he gives, fourthly, out of this passage, out of John's understanding of who he is and who Jesus is, he gives the great principle of all ministry in verse 30. He must become greater and I must become less. He must increase, but I must decrease. We, we heard about that this week some when we talked about the truth of God's grace and the truth of God's love and the truth of God's providence. Over and over and over again, our, our teachers in our conference talked about how there, there must be a making God big, a seeing God is big and man is small. And we tend to tilt that. We tend to distort that. We sang this morning, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name we give glory. To your name we want to glorify. There is that clear principle of ministry that we are here as a church. We are here as believers to decrease. You know, if, if we start touting our new building, oh, you ought, to, you ought to see what we've got. Todd dealt with this last night with the young people and talking about when they had their dedication service in the youth building. You know, he said, look, it's not about a building. And it's not about a building. We've said that, and we've said that, and I want to say it again because the whole point of this thing is, is that we must decrease because in decreasing, we point to the one who really matters, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Lord, the one who reigns, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We have to decrease and draw attention away from ourselves so that we might show him more clearly. What I want people to say when they leave those doors after being in worship with Grace Baptist Church is not, oh, we got a great building here. I don't even want to say, boy, it's a great sermon because people lie and say that. I don't want them to say that. I want them to leave out of here saying, wow, what a great Savior you serve. 
What a great Lord you exalted before my eyes today. We saw the King of glory and we worshiped him in all his glory. John says he must increase. I must decrease. Paul understood that. In, in, in his book to the, Philippi, the letter to the Philippians, he, he was talking about he's in prison. And some were happy he was in prison. Some were rejoicing that Paul was in prison. But, but others were grieving over that. And Paul said, don't grieve over that. I want you to know, brethren, that, that my circumstances, my imprisonment, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He, he got arrested and transported to Rome at government expense, and now he's there in the heart of the world, the very center of the world, and he's preaching the gospel freely. He said, I want you to know, my circumstances have gotten me to Rome, and now the gospel is spreading even further. There's a greater progress of the gospel, so that in my imprisonment, in the cause of Christ, has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, and we've dealt with that before, how important that was, and to everyone else, and to most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Then he comes to this verse in verse 15. He said, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former, those out of envy and strife, the former, they do it out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, uh, thinking that they will cause me more distress in my imprisonment. But what about it? If Christ is proclaimed and his truth and his gospel, then I rejoice, Paul says. Paul says, it's not about me. It's not about my comfort. It's not about my glory. It's not about people recognizing me and saying, oh, what a great apostle the apostle Paul is. No, it's that Christ be preached, Christ be proclaimed. And, and that's the ministry principle that, that John abides by and gives to us and wants us to see. But in those last verses, he gives us three things I want you to see about Jesus. It points to his deity. The bridegroom analogy points to his deity. But in verses 27 through 30, excuse me, I'm over in Philippians. In ver- it's one of those days. In verses... 31 through 36, in, in those verses, you, you begin to see the emphasis that both John puts and John the Baptist gives to the contrast of these two ministries that means that Jesus must increase and John's must decrease. Here are these three things. He first of all talks about, in verse 31, the preeminence of Jesus' origin. The preeminence of his origin. Preeminence just means first place, most important. The importance of Jesus' ordinance. He said in verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and, and the earth, and he speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. See, he's, he's making this contrast here. Jesus has come down out of heaven as the incarnate God. Jesus has come down as the only begotten of the Father. I was born of a man and a woman. I was born of the earth. I'm of the earth. I can tell you all sorts of things about the earth. I can call you to repentance because I know your sin, but, but I can't give you any more than that. Jesus is preeminent because of his origin. Jesus from above, from heaven, from the very presence and the very heart of God. In contrast, John is from the earth. 
and, and he derives his knowledge from earthly things, but Jesus has come from the presence of God. Folks, we sometimes take that for granted, I think. We sometimes, as, as Christians today, forget that this one who embodied Jesus, this one whom we call Jesus, this, this man who was a man, who was completely human, as well as completely divine that we read about in the words of Scripture, sometimes we forget that He is the pre-existent incarnate God. He came from heaven in a way that nobody else ever has or ever will. We, can't take that. we cannot just take that for granted. We have to recognize and acknowledge and rejoice in that. So He's preeminent. He's most important because of his origin. He's also most important, John says, because of his word, the preeminence of his word, the, the preeminence of his message. In verses 32 through 34, he says, for what he has seen and heard, uh, of that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal on this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. John, John says, listen, Jesus is preeminent because where he came from, but his preeminence also ex- is expressed by the words he speaks and the message that he brings. He comes and he testifies about what he's seen and what he's heard in heaven in the presence of God. I can tell you about what takes place on earth, John says. And, and, and me too, I can tell you. I can tell you what I see. I can tell you what I've experienced. I can tell you what I I see around me. But he speaks words from God right out of heaven. And John's implication is there, only as we speak his words do we understand. Only as we see his preeminence, the preeminence of his message, I've come to seek and save that which is lost. I've come to die that you might live. I've come to be your substitute and your sacrifice on the cross. Only as we hear what he says and abide in that, can we have real wisdom and understanding? He is the very expression of truth. He, he declares and he proves that God is true, John says in verse 33. The words of Jesus declare his deity. And finally, he is preeminent in the area of resource. Verse 35 The Father loves the Son and gives all things into His hands. Not only is the Spirit given to Christ, but because He is the beloved Son of the Father, everything which the Father possesses has been made available to Him. And He's placed it in His hands, John says in verse 35. It's interesting that John the Baptist, like all ministers and all witnesses and that exists today even, they have, to, they have to petition the Father for wisdom. We have to petition the Father in prayer and in fasting. Lord, we need your wisdom. We desire your wisdom. James says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God and he'll give it to you. But, but we who are of the earth, like John and like Bill and like you, we have, to, we have to petition of God to give it to us. Jesus didn't have to, have to say, God, could you give me a little wisdom? He possessed it from the very beginning. He was God incarnate. He was God in the flesh. 
He was God sent from heaven. So Jesus, by contrast of John and by contrast of you and me, has all the things of God immediately at his disposal. Then John sort of sums it all up in verse 36. He says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Paul will deal with that in later in Romans 1, 16 and 17, where he says, for the just shall live by faith, faith in the Son. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. It's a tremendous truth and a tremendous promise to you and me. But the contrast to that is, as we heard this past week, there's bad news that goes along with the good news. But he who does not obey, who does not believe the Son, will not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Paul dealt with that in Romans 1, clearly. God's wrath abides on all ungodliness and all unrighteousness, all ungodly attitudes and all unrighteous deeds. I mean, the the wrath of God abides on that clearly and righteously so. But those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who by faith trust Him as Savior and declare Him as Lord, will have eternal life. In that one verse, John sort of summarizes everything that's going to be taught for the rest of this book. I mean, that's it. If you understand verse 36, you understand the gospel. If you understand the Son and what He has done, if you understand the sacrifice that the Son has given on Calvary, Him dying in our place, our substitute, Him as our our paschal lamb, our substitutionary lamb, the one who takes away our sin and gives us his righteousness. If you understand what the gospel is all about, Jesus Christ at work saving a people for himself, saving a people for the glory of God, and you say, you know, I know I can't glorify God. I know I can't be righteous enough. I can't save myself, but I trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I trust in that work alone. You shall have eternal life. That's that's the gospel. John shows us that we've got a decrease that Jesus might increase. John shows us that we are just following in his tradition as forerunners to declare the truth of Jesus Christ. We are the ones whom he has set apart and called to be his witnesses here, right now, in Somerset, in Belasky County, in Kentucky, in the United States, and the world beyond, in the Chunkai River Valley this morning, in Peru. There are people from Grace Baptist Church declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Don't ever let us fail to proclaim that truth where we live right now. Don't ever think because we send teams to Peru to declare the glory of God in Christ Jesus' sacrifice, in His cross. Don't ever think, well, we've we've done it. How arrogant is that? 
How much is that missing the gospel? How much is that missing our calling? How much is that missing the truth that we are his witnesses? Now, here, and forever. By his grace. And by his calling. We belong to him. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in knowing who Christ is. We glory in the fact that He is our Redeemer, our Lord, our sacrifice, our substitute. We glory in the fact that the cross is our hope. And it's, only, it's our only hope. We thank you, Father, that you, by your word, has re- have revealed that to us. That you, by your word, you have shown us the truth. Help us, Father, to abide in it. Father, I pray for men and women here this morning, for young people here this morning that do not know you. I pray again that your Holy Spirit will move in their hearts and open their eyes to see their need for a Savior, to see their sin. Lord, then open their hearts to believe in Christ, the only Savior. Father, use this time to strengthen us who know you, to reconfirm your command in our life that we must decrease and you must increase. Lord, this is your church. And until we draw our dying breath, may you be preeminent in it. Because of your origin, because of the words that you speak, Lord, because of the authority that God has given you. Father has given you. We pray in Jesus' name.